Hey there, Kolshak fans. Kolshak's Loop, right back here with you again. This is Robert. Um, I, I just felt like I wanted to say something before we release this particular episode. Uh, Kendall R. Phillips, uh, the professor at Syracuse, uh, has written the book about Kolshak and, and Kolshak the Night Stalker. We are, are we're just absolutely thrilled to have that talk with Kendall. And uh, what we did on that particular one is I decided I wanted to see if I could release um, YouTube videos of that conversation. And with my uh, somewhat archaic uh, <laughs> recording system that I have, uh, I was only able to release um, sections of video and put them on YouTube that were in 15-minute increments. And so that took a while to try to put out. I think we ended up doing five or six episodes of that. If you haven't checked out those on video yet, just go to Kolshak's Loop on YouTube and you'll you'll find that there. Or you can even put in Kendall Phillips um, or Kendall R. Phillips. That'll get you there too. But a great episode with him. Uh, consequently, though, I let the uh, audio for the podcast episode kind of sit for a while. And uh, so it took me longer than I had expected to uh, release this particular episode with Kendall. Uh, his book is already out there. Uh, definitely check that out on Amazon. And um, we uh, just, again, uh, really enjoy talking to him. I think there are probably at least five or six other topics that I'd love to go through with him and have that many episodes with him uh, for, for the podcast. But he doesn't really just sit around and wait for us. So there, <laughs> there might be some issues with him and all the other things that he does. And again, he's a podcaster too. So, uh, his podcast pop life, um, very well, uh, at, uh, produced, uh, great topics. He has some really good, uh, speakers come on who have a great command of their, their topic and have done research on it. And so you should check that out too. So without any further ado, let's get this particular Kolshak's Loop episode started. Hello, this is James Rice, and this is the Kolshak's Loop podcast. Now, go chase the truth like your life depends on it, because it does. Kolshak's Loop podcast, midnight interview with Kendall R. Phillips. After my enlightening conversation with the beautiful Helen Surtees, I ran a check through tax records and business licenses. The Max Match dating service was almost brand spanking new. No one knew where it came from or what other branches it had. It seemed to me that such mysterious origins warranted what we in the press call the midnight interview. How people make sense of something when it comes out, like at that moment. So I can go back and look at Psycho or Dracula, and I do, and they're interesting. But I'm, oh, my first question is, what did it mean to people in a darkened theater in February of 1931 or in 1960 lined up to see the beginning of Psycho because Hitchcock wouldn't let you in after the movie started? Like, what was it like? like what, and what were those people thinking about engaging when they sat and watched this thing? And why did they walk out saying, oh, my God, that was important. Like, that mattered. That meant something. Uh, yeah. And I think the same is true with Kolchak. Oh, hey, listen, boy. 
You know what we're gonna do? You and I'll sit down and have a long chat, okay? You'll sure. rap about chai. I don't trust you, Kolchak. You double-cross your own fairy godmother for a story. Kendall, how are you doing, buddy? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks so much for having uh, this, me. This is absolutely a thrill uh, for me to be able to do this. And now that I've been able to wear the quote-unquote uh, journalist hat, uh, I, I felt extra privileged to be able to get a, a little advanced um, copy of your, your book so I could do some reading of it. And for the, the listeners and possibly viewers, if I can get this out on YouTube and other else, um, I've also... Um, been uh you know reading up to about half of it have some good questions i think and uh, we've got one of our listeners who's uh, phoned in some questions to me and i believe if if something else doesn't go wrong uh bradley my co-host will be joining us also and then for an added pleasure uh, i'm doing this from my house this time and uh, we'll more than likely hear and maybe see those dogs i talk about the hellhounds uh, all the time right now it is so so deadly hot outside it's zapped all their energy they go outside for like 10 seconds come back in and then they sleep so it may be just fine for that but kendall it's a thrill that you've written this uh book about coal shack tell us a little bit about yourself though uh from from the beginning here i know that you uh, are a professor and then where where do we go from there that's a, that's a good question. Hopefully retirement is my, my main goal. But yeah, so I'm a professor at Syracuse University. I teach what's called communication and rhetorical studies, which is a very fancy way for saying intersections of culture. So I'm interested in, I'd say, kind of politics and popular culture. I'm kind of under, interested in how we use media to kind of make sense of the world and navigate our way through it. Um, I'm originally from Texas, uh, so I know that heat. Uh, I'm like your dog's 10 seconds in the heat now and I go right down. Uh, I have a PhD from Penn State and I've been at Syracuse for, I believe it's now 23 years. So I have been here uh, for quite a quite a while. Uh, and most of my work, well, I think a good percentage of the work is in and around horror. So I've, I've kind of become uh, invested in why we like to listen to scary stories and watch scary stuff. And I'm still trying to figure that out. That's fantastic. Um, and, and I guess as, as you talk about the um, second golden age uh, of television and, and really the timing of where all that um, landed, and, and you say how you sort of grew up in that, I mean, it, was, there, was there any other interest in television and movies and things that you had than the horror side? Or was it all strictly the, the horror side just really pulled you for a number of years? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I actually have, I like all film and television. I'm a couch potato from back in the day. So I, I watched all those uh, shows in the 70s, big comic book guy as well. Uh, loved all that pop culture stuff. But I would say, you know, for me, and this probably makes me a little weird compared to a lot of my uh, colleagues in the horror studies world is, I wouldn't necessarily have said I was the world's biggest horror fan. I actually just got interested in why people love it. Mm. It was, you know, so I have come to love it and probably know way more about it than I should know. But I really approached it as it is a kind of peculiar genre. Like you think about, you know, action is thrilling and we imagine ourselves as a hero and porn, I guess, is thrilling in another way. And, you know, comedy makes us laugh and, and drama makes us think and then horror scares the bejesus out of us. And you say, why do people keep wanting to go back and look at these scary things? So that's kind of what's drawn me into it. And then it's like with anything else, once you start asking questions, you just have more questions and more mm. questions. And so now... I think five or six books in and lots of articles. I'm just getting started trying to figure out why we watch all this scary stuff. There's, there's that uh, Mark DeWidziak uh, curiosity 
that he talks about. And it's, it's certainly something that runs, I would say naturally through the academic world. I mean, that's really the basis of us doing that. And then, then giving that, uh, letting those stories continue and the questions continue when we talk about it to others. And, and I guess to a certain extent, that's what the role the, the podcasters play is we like to cover, um, and talk about what we see, but then in this, it's the same thing. We're basically doing it by a set of questions that we continuously ask. And, uh, so, and I think, and I think that's important because, you know, it's easy and I often, you know, I do teach classes on horror films and horror uh, pop culture. And so inevitably there's students that come in first day or so of class and say, isn't it just cause it's scary? You're like, isn't it just cause it's fun? Like, why do you have to make it so intellectual? And I, and I agree. It's like, it, we shouldn't lose track of the fact that it's fun. Like it's fun to be scared. It's fun to throw our popcorn and shriek and all that sort of stuff. It, it, it's exciting. It's engaging. It's interesting. But I do think like you, that there's something more to it that we watch these things or we read these things or listen to these things because there's something we're trying to kind of make sense of in the world. And so for me, it's, it's exactly as you do with the podcast, you say, let's, let's pop the hood and look underneath and say, what is the engine driving this? Like what are the various components that make uh, you know, a, a film like Halloween so huge or a TV show or a TV movie like Cold Jack so huge or you know, now like you know, Get Out or whatever the latest uh, uh, terrifying movie that everybody's watching is. What is it that's drawing people to that film? to that character, to that narrative. And so that's kind of what I try to figure gotcha. out. And, and that within then is the, the basis of the rhetoric style of criticism and examination that you do, correct? Yeah, I think that the, one of the places I'm a little different, you know, a lot of the folks who do this academically um, are heavily grounded in particular theories. Psychoanalysis is, is very good. So everything longer than it is wide is a, is a penis and everything <laughs> that's a hole is, you know, whatever you get that you get the idea, right, which is all fine. And I'm not, I'm not I'm not dismissive of that. But for me, I'm really interested in how people make sense of something when it comes out, like at that moment. So I can go back and look at Psycho or Dracula, and I do, and they're interesting. But I'm, my first question is, what did it mean to people in a darkened theater in February of 1931 or in 1960 lined up to see the beginning of Psycho because Hitchcock wouldn't let you in after the movie started? Like, what was it like? like what, and what were those people thinking about engaging when they sat and watched this thing? And why did they walk out saying, oh, my God, that was important. Like, that mattered. That meant something. Yeah. And I think the same is true with culture. Yeah, I get your I get your energy and passion about that. And I love that. And and realistically, that gives me a good segue. And and actually, we have the master of segues uh, who who has joined us at this point. That being Bradley. Uh, Bradley, welcome. And and Bradley, as you adjust those things, I was that my segue was going to be. I noticed that one of the the books that you did, possibly the first one, um, was about Dracula. Correct. Yeah, so the first book on horror I did uh, was uh, looking at the history of horror from really 1931, because Dracula and Frankenstein are kind of the first films called horror. Right. There was lots of films before that, but they were the first time people said, these are horror films, we'll call it that, and that stuck, and that's why we <laughs> still have that today. And so I wanted to look at what that book really looks at. It starts with Dracula, but then the question of the book is, how is it that horror keeps changing its shape, mm -hmm. right? So you got the classic Gothic, the first golden age are those, you know, Frankenstein and the werewolf and the creature from the Black Lagoon and et cetera, et cetera. Then that kind of winds its way out. I think it kind of dies in 1948 
when Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and it's like all bets are off. Like you're, you can't be scary after Abbott and Costello have made fun of you. Like, you know, you're, you're done. So then there's a little period where it's like not quite certain. Then we get the creature features. So the thing from another planet comes out in 51 and suddenly it's like, Oh yeah, space aliens are scary. And so then you get that iteration of that. Then you get psycho. And then you get this, you know, that that's relevant to Kolchak in some ways, the second golden age, which I, and I think some people at least agree with me, really starts in 68. It's kind of the two films, Rosemary's Baby, which is the kind of big mainstream film. And then the one I thought was more interesting is Night of the Living Dead, which was a very, very low budget, very, very independent, slow re- re- release, kind of dropped into, actually originally dropped into uh, double feature matinees for kids to watch because no one bothered to watch it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Roger Ebert, Roger Ebert famously writes this editorial in the Chicago Sun-Times blasting theater owners for putting this movie out with, I think it was like Attack of the Saucer People or something. And it was like, kids watch, yay, Saucer People. And he says, kids are like watching, now they're like, ooh, scary, ooh, scary. And it's like, wait. We're coming to get oh you, my God. Barbara. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and then on. it's like, they're eating entrails and it's like, kids are now, they're not laughing and screaming, they're sobbing, they're in a fetal position. Um, but then, you know, so, so that moment like blows the doors open. Like suddenly, you know, ratings, the, the movie rating system is, is up. Like the old production code is over. You can make anything you want. And horror filmmakers from like 68 until about 82 are just like, yes, we're going to make Last House on the Left and The Exorcist and Alien and Friday the 13th. And they're just going nuts. Um, so, that, so anyway, back to the question. That book, Projected Fears, tries to look at how it keeps changing. Like, why is it at certain points in 52 or 60 or 68 or 78 or whenever it is, how, how do certain films pop up and everybody goes like, oh, yeah, that. We're going to do that. Like everything's, you know, how do they game change your films? And so that's what that interest was. That's awesome. Bradley, I want you to come in in just a second. I got two things to say, and then I want to make sure I, I talk about your connection here real quickly. Um, oh, and of course there goes my new washer that's making noise, but it shouldn't be making. Fantastic. The joys of recording at home. Everybody try to do it. Okay. Anyway, um, I, you know, for me, it seemed like with Dracula and vampires specifically, and it might even go to honestly, when I finally saw, uh, you know, the, the first Kolchak TV movie when I was only, you know, six, five years old. And, and then later, when I start playing football, uh, when I am uh, 11 years old and 12 years old, and I realized that I was a pretty big kid and I was pretty fast and athletic, but I realized all of a sudden I can kind of dominate some people. And I don't have to be so, so afraid anymore and scared of things that I think might hurt me. And for whatever reason, one time when I'm going to sleep, I may have seen something scary on TV before, probably with Salem's Lot, uh, more, more than mm-hmm. likely. Um, and I started thinking about vampires playing football against me. <laughs> and, <laughs> I love it. And, and I all of a sudden was not afraid to, like, tackle them and, you know, and, and put them in the ground like I had on the field. And uh, I'm trying, I guess, maybe to give my aggression <laughs> there a little bit of uh, place for, for saving me a little bit. But it was that vicarious experience with those movies then that I played out, you know, fantastically in my own mind that really was pretty pivotal in me getting over just these natural initial fears that I have. And uh, so I just wanted to make that statement. We can kind of circle back to that at some point. But Bradley, Segway King. I also noticed not only the zombie reference that Kendall makes in his book, but your favorite cartoon, much to my chagrin, 
was mentioned in his book too. He talks about Scooby-Doo. Oh, yeah, Scooby-Doo's great. He actually mentioned something else there, though. The greatest horror movie of all time, Not the Living Dead. That is my favorite well, the, horror the movie. There for, yeah, yeah. We had, a, we had a running joke. That the best way to refer to Are you a professor or what would be the... Uh, oh, just call me Kendall, please. Come on. I'm from Texas. We don't, we don't have such airs where I come from. But te- oh, technically, well. you have your PhD probably, right? I am a doctor and a professor, but please, I'm Kendall. I was Kendall when I was hauling hay and nine years old. I'm Kendall today. Nothing's changed. Dr. Professor Kendall. Uh, Hauling hay, that's something we, uh, man, you you just gained a lot of uh, respect from me uh, living down here in Alabama. We we have a lot of hay to be uh, hauled down here. But yeah, Not Living Dead, favorite horror film personally of all time. It was one of the things that I saw uh, that really left an impact on me. But I guess if I had one question, maybe you already covered this. What was the first film? that got you to think critically about horror? I would say, so the one when I was young that had that impact on me, like Night of the Living Dead did on you, was Halloween, because I mm. went to see that. I was only nine. My older brother, who, who has made a series of really bad choices with me, um, was always leading me to horrible things. Um, so he came home after seeing it and sit, sat on my bed and told me the story, which was horrifying. Like it was, that was the most terrifying. And so then I begged and pleaded, you have to take, I have to see it. I can't just have it in my head. Uh, and that loved it. But for, as a kind of academic, the, the film that really uh, started me was the silence of the lambs. And mm. I think part of it was, it was, it was the quality of the film, but it was also the really uh, diverse reactions. You know, there were a lot of women who said, this is really important film. We have a strong female uh, lead, you know, Jodie Foster playing Clarice Starling, like they loved it. But other people, I think quite rightly so, uh, members of the LGBTQ community said, why do we have another pseudo trans man as another gay monster when, you know, that's not the way the world works? And so I was really interested in how a film that just seemed like Hollywood entertainment could become so important to people. Like it really mattered whether you liked the film or didn't like the film and why. And so that's what got me started saying there's more here than just being scary. Like there's a bigger conversation that we're having. You know, uh, Kendall, that, that actually sends me down another trail talking about the LGBTQ community and, and its association with movies and a movie that I think gets a lot of praise nowadays, but I think it's not a good movie in its respective series is the nightmare on Elm street, Freddy, the nightmare on Elm street two. Uh, I feel like that it's not a good Freddy movie because it subverts all the Freddy stereotypes and it's not, it, it doesn't make sense logically how he can come. To, that's just me thinking of it from a, from a, Hey, how does this work? Nuts and bolts wise. But it has really become like a, an LGBT, you know, the lead character has really become like a character who, you know, was a closeted, you know, closeted gay. And, and uh, he even came out personally in his own life later. And I think that that was sort of, it's sort of been a movie that people have looked at and been like, Hey, this is a strong movie for, you know, for our community and stuff. And uh, I just wanted to get your opinion on that, what you thought about that movie. No, I, I agree with you on both fronts. When I first saw Nightmare on Elm Street 2, when it came out, I sort of thought, this doesn't seem like the first one. Like, this this is not what I remembered. Yeah. Um, but I also totally, and this is part of why I think these conversations are important, is, you know, these films or television shows are complex. And so what I see in it coming like you did from a, I'm a fan of slashers. I liked Wes Craven. I like Nightmare on Elm Street. I'm wanting to see more of that. And I get this kind of much more internal identity. Who am I? What am I, uh, you know, attracted to uh, narrative going on? I also get that other people looked at that and said, oh, yeah, that that that's what makes sense to me. So that's what I think is so great about this. And why, as, as, as a side note, an op ed moment, if you will, um, I hate when 
I love when people on social media argue and debate about films. I hate when they take these ridiculous positions like if you like that film, you're an idiot. Or if you hate that film, you're an idiot. Like there, there's a, there are lots of great horror films that I don't care for personally just because for whatever reason it didn't sit with me. Same thing, there are films I absolutely love. I'll go to the, to the, the, the battle ready to fight for that I totally get. Most people are going to say that's garbage, but that's cool. That's why we're different. That's why this is interesting. Hey, I want to throw you under the bus, or not under the bus, but I want to throw, I want to put you, uh, put you uh, under the microscope. You, under the microscope, where you have to make a decision. Can you give me, give everybody out there a couple of the films, or maybe one or two of the films that you, that you, I guess people that you criticize or you don't think is highly of, and some that maybe other people criticize that you think higher of than other people. Did that make sense? Maybe it did. The, I, I, I can easily give you the ones that I don't like, and this, I get a lot of grief, so I, I apologize. I don't. I don't like a single Rob Zombie film. Hmm. I didn't like House of a Thousand Corpses. I didn't like Devil's Rejects. I, I didn't like 31. I didn't like the Halloween reboot. I didn't like Lords of Salem. Now, I have a very good friend, Bernadette Califel, a great professor at Gonzaga. She and I co-edited a book series on horror, and we are very good friends. She loves Rob Zombie deeply and passionately and thinks he's the greatest film auteur in the world. I just, it just didn't. Everyone said, Devil's Re- I've watched Devil's Reject twice. And I didn't like it either time. So that's, if you want me to get hate mail, uh, tweet, I'm at Dark Projections on Twitter. Let me have it. Uh, but yeah, I just, it just doesn't work for me. Uh, yeah, I, I saw the, uh, the Halloween reboot that he did. And other than just the graphic violence, um, I did kind of like the story. Um, but the graphic violence was just too much for me. And, and, and the fact that it started at the root with the kids and seeing them be so violent, that was just really disturbing. Um, but, I, I mean, that was probably his point. And, and it's not like that, not that type of violence per se, but that um, aggression out of youth does happen. And that's certainly, you know, disturbing in and of itself. And I don't want to steal that part of that question. Bradley, let's get one more, and then I'm going to get into Kolchak. Oh, yeah. Um no, just going back to that, I also think in Halloween 2, whenever he, he's mostly unmasked, like that mask is so tattered, it sort of takes away from the whole what Michael was, and uh, I, I don't know, that was just my thing. And I guess going back to, to another question, you know, talking about horror, is there any movies, so like, we talked about like, I guess, slashers, you know, the the whole, you know, Halloween starting it. Is there what other genres uh, or any other genres in, in particular that pique your interest? I mean, I know there's a lot of, of genres out there, and slasher covers so much. But uh, you know, besides slasher, what is some, what are some other uh, movie stereotypes or any other types of movies that you enjoy or have crit- enjoyed criticizing either? Yeah, I mean, across horror, I like I, I like everything. I, you know, I am not a dedicated to any particular. I, I like zombies. I like possession i like ghosts um outside of horror i've done a little bit of work on the marvel cinematic universe which i think this is also not that popular among some of my academic friends but i think marvel is the most impressive uh uh substantial moment in cinematic history maybe ever but certainly in the last you know 50 60 years like the ability to create that cinematic universe to dominate popular culture i think it is very very impressive and so i you know i'm not that i would go to the battle line for every single marvel film because there have been some definite uh ones i liked and ones i didn't like as much but you can't take away from 27 billion dollars in box office you know whatever 30 29 films now over 14 years like that is stunning no one's come close and so to me that in and of itself is just 
that's an impressive piece of work. Whatever you think of it, it's impressive. Cool. Yeah, and I, cool. I think I think even the box office fatigue of like the Marvel films is still. I mean, they're waning a bit, but I mean, still one of the top films this year was uh, the new Doctor Strange. You know, I mean, and people said, "Oh, it's too woke," and audiences didn't like it. But Doctor Strange made like has made like over nine hundred and fifty million dollars, a number we should treat respectfully. Oh, without yeah. China, without China, and that's the mm-hmm. other thing. People who who aren't like looking at the industry and just look at the numbers and go, "It didn't have as big a global box office." Like, yeah, but there's an entire massive continent, the number two film uh, watching market in the world has decided they're excluding the House of Mouse. So if Doctor Strange Multiverse didn't make as much as other films, you got to take into account some of that. That, that, it, that it made $950 million, I would like $950 million. Oh, yeah. And I'm going to loop that back around to you, Robert, because the actual director of that was, of course, Sam Raimi, who uh, did Evil Dead, who was first reported on by our friend Mark DeWoodziak, who, uh, you know, Probably one of the greatest Cold Shack. Uh, the greatest, without a doubt. Oh, yeah. Mark yeah. is the greatest. I will be the first person to say that. Absolutely. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's great. And, of course, Sam did, you know, the first uh, Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire. He had all the Xena, Warrior Princess um, uh, TV show things. And, 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 of course, that's where Bruce Campbell came out of, uh, or at least went into after uh, Evil Dead. So mm-hmm. really cool stuff. Well, I, I am going to jump on the, the superhero bandwagon too. ask a question about that, and then have to lead us back into Kolshak. So I have this unresearched, unverified theory that I've always thought of and occasionally spoken about. And, it, and it's really just, and it's probably already out there because it's not that original, I don't think. But it's just that it seems like there is always a resurgence, and now it's lasted for, gosh, a good 20 years. But it seems like there is a resurgence of a supernatural slash superhero movie um, craze, let's say, that, that occurs during global war or at least during national war. And if you think about, you know, World War II and then the things that came out of that and how we match that with um, Captain America and and the way they um, brought in what's the, the evil group in um hydra hydra yeah, yeah yeah and how they have the link to uh, that sort of uh, world war ii german axis uh group and then of course it just it just felt like when all these latest superhero movies came back out again it was sort of the tail end of us in the gulf war and afghanistan and and then more and more things that you know continued and and, and the, the bizarre thing is circling back in now to where during the cold war now we have russia once again being the, the really the bad guy and as expressed in Stranger Things and, and seen in all kinds of other stuff. Have you ever seen anything, Kendall, or thought about it yourself that there's some sort of link to these types of movies and then also what maybe I know you talk about the rhetoric of what's happening in society and we talk about kind of the cultural revolutions, but at the same time, what about this influence of war and maybe how we deal with that as a um, public and by the way, kudos for using light motif in one of your uh, sentences in your book. <laughs> Thank you. Very I really much. like that. Go ahead. Um, I'll try and throw in some big words every once in a while. No, I think you're exactly certainly on the horror side. It's absolutely almost a truism in in kind of horror studies that horror tracks onto at least moments of global turmoil. So you know, I always make the point. There's so there are literally thousands of films that use something like horror in the silent era 
you know, they're haunted houses and there's a, a version of Dracula. Most people know a kind of illegitimate, uh, illegal version called Nosferatu. Mm -hmm. There was a version of Frankenstein from 1910. So you got all these things are going on, but they never really kind of coalesce until 1931. So what's going on in 1931, the worst year of the great depression. Like you're talking about the highest number of bank failures, highest unemployment and the federal government sort of saying nothing we can do about it. Sorry. And so people really did feel like the world had turned upside down. And at that moment, interestingly, two things kind of emerge in popularity, horror and Shirley Temple. I cannot explain Shirley Temple, but I do understand that, you know, horror becomes a way for people to process that. And then throughout the history, you know, when you track it, 1950s, Cold War, 1968, as I talked about the kind of second golden age of horror, that was a horrible year. I don't know if it can still be the most horrible year, because I think we've got some recent competition, but it, you know, Martin Luther King is assassinated. Bobby King, Bobby Kennedy is assassinated. The Tet Offensive turns the war. So now it's pretty clear to everybody we're not winning, whatever that would mean, Vietnam. You got violence at the Chicago National Convention. You've got the riots in major cities after King's assassination. The country feels like it is absolutely tearing itself apart. And then along comes George Romero and puts that on the screen and says, this is what it looks like when you can't get along and you tear yourself apart. This is what it is. And so I think, you know, it's interesting, Night of the Living Dead, the French audiences saw it first. Like Night of the Living Dead circulates around the U.S., kind of in midnight movies, goes to France, and the French say, yeah, that's exactly what America is. And then the film comes back and people start saying, oh, yeah, this is not just a cheap independent film. This is something more. Awesome. And I think the same is true for, and, you know, and I think the other part of it is probably in all those moments we want, to see the monster, but we also want to see the heroes. And Marvel is certainly, you know, Iron Man uh, from 2008 is a deeply post 9-11 film. I mean, oh, it begins yeah. in the Middle East, he's selling weapons. It's all about terror. It's all about consequences of violence and arms and et cetera, et cetera. And what's impressive to me about Marvel is they managed to not ride the bubble. Like, you know, we certainly saw with the Superman movies in the 70s, the Batman movies in the 80s. Most have a little bubble and then they lose relevance. Somehow Marvel, through all kinds of weird, wonderful ways, has managed to kind of stay at this level that is stunning. You know, I mean, there's not a Marvel movie that's not going to open number one. They just will. We just know that. So. Yeah, they had some prescient Doctor Strange-esque, you know, way of organizing the way they rolled out these movies. And, you know, with just a... with nerds like us who like harp onto one tiny little word or one tiny little scene in a movie, whether it's, you know, Tony Stark, all of a sudden having Captain America shield, you know, and we're like, what blowing your mind. You know, if you hadn't read all the, the spoilers and how that's going to link to everything. And again, goosebumps all over thinking about this, but, um, man, that's, that, that's really, really good stuff. And I know, um, Bradley, you continue to get on my nerve because you like the zombie movie so much. And yes, it does have just that much relevance is I get it. At least we haven't had to go to uh, 2001 space odyssey yet. We'll we'll get there at some point in time. Oh, I know. I love it too. I mean, I, I love the movie, just not as much as Bradley. <laughs> favorite movie, favorite real film of all time. Not real. I, I, I say real film. I said more non horror film. True. True. All right. So let's, let's do, let's do a little Kolchak action. Um, you again, you talk about um, in the book and no big spoilers here, I hope uh, you talk about in the book about the, this gothic horror and how you really feel like Carl Kolschak is more termed. I think I'm going to get this wrong, but a gothic investigator or a gothic detective detective. Um, talk, talk a little bit about that. 
if you wouldn't mind, please. Yeah, I think, you know, from a genre history perspective, which is kind of, I guess, part of where I'm coming at this from, what is really innovative about Cold Check, and there's so much to love about the series, and there's so much to love about the, 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 the movies, but what's really innovative was that recentering the story, not on the victim, not on the monster, but on the investigator, right? So, so that is what, that's the game changer in terms of horror on television. We'd certainly had horror on television, um, anthology series like Night Gallery and Twilight Zone. Um, we'd had uh, Dark Shadows, of course, Dan Curtis's earlier, uh, the melodrama, uh, soap opera. We'd had, um, you know, uh, comedy horror. So we'd had the Munsters, we'd had the Addams Family, we'd had Bewitched, et cetera, et cetera. But all of those were kind of centered on either victims or monsters or some variation of them. Kolchak comes through, and it's actually not the first, it's actually kind of the second <laughs> series to do this, uh, but it's the one that's most successful, centers it on the investigator, on the monster hunter. And that becomes, and so you think about all of the horror television of the last you know, 20 years, it's been Buffy, it's X-Files, it's Supernatural, it's, it's Twin Peaks, you know, it's uh, the Friday 13th, the series. It's all centered on these you know, monster hunters. And that, that gothic investigator becomes kind of the, the pivotal thing that I think particularly works well on television. And I think that's what Kolchak really changed. You know, and going back to that, too, is I was sort of I'm over here looking through notes and stuff. Constantine, you know, one of the biggest people. I, I don't know if you saw the TV show, but in the D.C. universe, he's like that that gothic detective. He, he uh, I think he first made his appearance in an epi- in a a uh, issue of Swamp Thing, I think, in 1985 or somewhere around there in the 80s. And so, I mean, Constantine, too, is like, here, here, Constantine, you know, this, this occult investigator is looking for uh, this swamp creature. I mean, and, and it's hard, it's hard not to notice that, hey, the be- one of the best episodes of Kolchak, even like, what, nine years, 11 years prior, was the uh, Spanish Moss Murders episode, which, uh, you know, sort of saw Kolchak do this. So even in comic books, I feel like you get the, uh, we call it, you know, I've, I've heard it called getting the rub, or, you know, you get the... That's more like a wrestling term. I don't know if you're familiar with the wrestling. <laughs> a little bit, yeah, a little bit. But, you know, it, you get that uh, that little push that Kolchak sort of even influences comic books and stuff, you know? No, and, the, you know, Marvel Comics had a kind of parody uh, issue that featured yeah. Kolchak. Kolchak-like characters appear in Batman and Howard the Duck and all kinds. Yeah, the influence of Kolchak, which is interesting for what is really a very short-lived series. I mean, it doesn't even go to its full series run. It, it kind of gets the plug pulled for all kinds of legitimately good reasons um, for it to have sparked such long lasting. I mean, it did change television horror. Absolutely. It shows up in uh, comic books. It shows up of course in novels. I mean, I think it really was a game changer and that's what makes it so interesting. How did this relatively small short lived television series become this phenomena that even the people who maybe listen to this or, or see the book who've never heard of Kolchak, when they start reading, they'll say, oh, I know what that, I know what that looks like. Like I have seen a version of that over and over and over again. Yeah. The, the, the follow-up I was going to have to the Gotha question, sorry, I stepped out for a second, but it's, I did um, a fair amount of studying in college about, with uh, German uh, language, German architecture, culture, those types of things. And I spent about six weeks in Germany back in 86. And one of, I was actually there three days before Chernobyl, uh, happened and, uh, was there in East Germany and had the, 
we had to watch everything we ingested and, and all that stuff while we were there. But when we finally made it to Cologne, Germany, or Köln, K-O-L-N, if you're speaking German, and we saw the Köln Dome uh, being restored, you know, that being sort of the penultimate or the ultimate Gothic uh, structure. And, and I always think of this, this dichotomy of Gothic where it's this, you know, soaring and reaching to high heights um, to show that you're closer to God, but, but then having just this nearly grotesque and certainly terrifying um, look about the structure and then the types of things that you put on it with gargoyles or whatever else, you know, that are on there. And it's that combination of those things and then thinking about Kolshak being this gothic investigator maybe you touched on this if you did i'm sorry but that's the kind of thing that it really intrigues me uh so much about this just this air of gothic um you know there's there's so much evil and wrong but then at the same time it, it heightens this awareness of potentially this this other world and and Christ and whatever else. Now we can say it's all going to be Christian related. It could be just be God for whatever God you have and good and evil and that kind of stuff. But, um, so it, 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 when you think about Kolchak being Gothic in terms of the monsters, do you also think of it being Gothic in terms of like the architecture, the, the culture and the, those types of things? Yeah. Totally. I mean, I, when I go back and think of like the root that makes that Gothic dome feel Gothic, it, it, to me, the root of Gothic is, the otherworldly in this world. Yes. And so that's what those classic Gothic cathedrals, you know, wh whether it's, you know, wherever it is, but certainly Cologne is, is, is a great example. It just, the minute you look at it, or certainly when you enter it, you feel as if you stepped out of the busy market street into this other space. And so all the lines lift your eyes up and everything looks amazing and otherworldly. And it's all, it's a different world in this world. And so if that's kind of the root of this, whether it's a novel that's about, you know, through the looking glass or the thing in the basement or the thing in the attic or mm -hmm. wherever the thing happens to be living, um, it's really about that intersection. Like I'm in my normal world and then suddenly I get a glimpse of this other world that's also here. And that is the heart of what Kolchak was about. And what I loved about Kolchak, and, and I write about this in the book, I think that to me the most, one of the most innovative things that Kolchak brought to the table was the otherworldly is here, right? It's not in Transylvania in the 19th century. It's not in outer space. It's in an alleyway, right? It's in a taxi cab. It's renting a car in Las Vegas, right? It's, it's uh, at, you know, at a sleep research center in Chicago. Oh, it's in, it. it's yeah. on a cruise ship, right? I mean, the places you go. And the other great thing about Kolchak was when those things happened, there are consequences. My, my favorite scene in the original Night Stalker movie from 72 is the moment when we see the, the, the woman who's died, our first victim, and then the camera angle flips reverse shot. And so we're watching the doctors performing the yes. autopsy looking down at us because it reminds us, yeah, if a vampire killed someone in our world, the cops would come, the body would be investigated, there'd be an autopsy. Like it wouldn't just be like in Dracula where someone dies and they go, eh, I don't know. But here there would be legal procedures and medical forms and all that stuff. And Kolchak kind of took that otherworldly supernatural gothic narrative and really brought it into the mundane aspects of everyday life. And that's really scary. Fantastic. You know, funny, Go ahead, Riley. Oh, the funny thing about that, too, is like that happens during the opening credits, does it not? It has credits rolling yeah, up. Right. Night, the Night Stalker appears mm. across them all staring down going, oh, my. What's that? You know, right? Yeah. It's great. And uh, going to – oh, I was going to talk about gothic literature Go a little bit. 
uh, or actually Southern Gothic literature is something I'm more uh, familiar with, like Flannery O'Connor and stuff. And even in, even in, in the world of the Southern Gothic, like it reminds me so much of Kolchak because where's Gothic literature? I think it, I don't know in my head and maybe this is just me. I, I sort of equate that to taking place in some far off place and, and all this, but Flannery O'Connor, something like that, like a, a life you save, the life you save, maybe your own, I think was one person like that could happen here. And, yeah. and I think that's what cold happens with Kolchak. Like you read these stories like, Hey, you know, this is not, this is not some different place. This is in our own backyard. And I think that's what Kolchak brought to, uh, uh, you know, brought to television screens everywhere. No, I think it's absolutely true. And if you look at, again, most of the horror narratives up into the 60s, so in the late 60s and, and about the time Kolchak is kind of being developed, it was always horror was over there, right? Over there might be outer space, over there might be Transylvania, over there might be, you know, 100 years ago, but it was always like, you know, over, you go out and you encounter it. But the films, I think Psycho is kind of the beginning of this cycle. Yeah. With Psycho, Hitchcock said, actually the monster's not out there he's next door like he he's living with his mother <laughs> by the motel uh by the uh, no longer used highway right so that and then you look at like night of the living dead it's not like an alien invasion attack it's like the real horror of night of the living dead is us like we are the problem mm -hmm. and so i think kolchak as was southern gothic that took that encounter with the other and recognized that in southern culture the other is here it's in us and we have been walking around it all the time and so Kolchak really takes that and, and makes it. And I think this is what made the first two films so impressive. And the core of the series was that other is here. It's every day. You're walking by. it. It's not, you don't have to go find a haunted house. And in fact, you notice there's almost, there's no haunted houses. Like Kolchak's not out going to Amityville looking for that. He is at a fashion show. He's at a diamond sale. He's, you know, it's like the most mundane, everyday, everyday things. Kolchak says, there might be something lurking, right? Just behind what you think is normal. Yeah, you know, and, and just um, when you mentioned the scene of splitting away from the, uh, cutting away from the victim and then seeing the autopsy investigation, and and then later through that episode, especially the, the, the infamous lines of dog, dog, who said anything about a dog when they talk about the dog bite, you know, and... <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's it's those sort of sci-fi moments, uh, you know, brought into the horror show that I enjoy so much. And you think about you you say some things about the the sort of the legacy of Kolchak and how it influences other shows. And and I always think about um, you know the, the the funny thing is Bradley. I don't know how much Buffy the Vampire Slayer you've watched, but they call themselves the Scooby Squad. You know, because they're always investigating. Um, what's going on. So that's how they sort of proceed through to help the hero gather information and go out and do battle. And of course we've got, um, you know, uh, the X-Files and what they did with their investigation, but then past those two, you've got one of my favorite sci-fi shows, which is fringe. And, you know, it's, it's all purely um, CSI, you know, kind of investigation stuff with just a little bit of hero and interaction, you know, mixed in and uh and i just love those combinations and that's what really has always made me such a big fan of kolshak is you you continue to have this as the investigative reporter he has to continue to investigate you know it's not just slasher scene after slasher scene after slasher scene i mean he has to interact with his people and his environment 
And, you know, everybody knows the structure. He's going to go back to INS at some point and fight with Tony. He's going to yes. make fun of Ron. But, it, you know, those, those rare times Ron and, and Carl actually work together. And they make fun of Tony. And, uh, you know, the, the scene about when he, uh, they say something that throws Tony on his ear. And, and the few times that Miss Emily takes Carl's side and does things. Just, just love all that and mixed into it. But I tell you what. Let's make sure we don't forget. I've got the questions from Jeff uh, that we've got here, and I've got those queued up on my phone. I'm going to see if we can play those correctly, and uh, or at least effectively, and then we'll do those. Hey, while you're doing that, Robert, yeah. I might go ahead and, and jump in here uh, because, you know, we're talking about, and, and I think this is something that uh, that you don't have to, I mean, everybody, I think that some people don't realize is that you don't have to, even something like Dracula, when it was written, people are like, oh, this is something new and fresh. But everything is referential to something else. You build upon everything. There's no wholly original idea. But even sometimes the outcome may not be, like you may get to an outcome and people say, I don't see how you came to that outcome from coming from this. But you get there either way. You know, something like Stranger Things, which is probably the biggest show in the world right now, built upon Buffy, built upon uh even bits of, you know, all this horror. I mean, if you've seen it, the the last episode, there's a direct Halloween homage, you know. I mean, it, it just is what it is. And you don't, and people think, oh, if you're not original, some people bash it for being unoriginal. But I think that stuff like that is makes it even more enjoyable to me is if you can see the references and people wear their influences on their sleep. For the longest time, people wouldn't because they felt like it would be, hey, I'm copying this or that. But I think we're entered a time now where it's okay to be like, hey, this is what I love and this is what this is based off of. And I'm proud to say it is, you know, I'll show it. Yeah, I think one of the things that makes Kolchak so interesting, is, especially when you look at it in that period in you know, the early 70s, is what it's borrowing from and what it's using. So, you know, clearly, back to Robert's point earlier, in many ways, Kolchak is a police procedural. Right. It, it could have been any number of police procedurals if Kolchak was just a detective and those were criminals, not monsters. But, you know, in the early 1970s, cops were not quite as popular as they had been in the 50s and 60s. <laughs> and so you get a whole bunch of different kinds of detectives, you know, women detectives and private investigators and Rockford and all kinds of things kind of started. And so Kolchak kind of takes that. And since cops can't be quite the, you know, always heroic just because of what's going on in the news in the early 1970s. Who is heroic? It's newspaper reporters. I mean, we just had the Pentagon Papers. We just had uh, Watergate. You know, you had uh, Woodward and Bernstein were suddenly lauded heroes who saved democracy. And so, hey, a newspaper reporter who investigates like a cop, but then you add this gothic element and suddenly you've created something exciting and new. But absolutely, it's, there's nothing new under the sun. The real creative part is how you kind of reformulate it and turn it into something that really feels different. Yeah, and, and kudos, of course, to Jeff Rice, and I appreciate that you mentioned him in your book also. And um, kudos to him because his novel really predates Watergate and, you know, the, and the, the government cover-up. And, and I always, at some point, Bradley wanted to do this because I know you know Jaws so well. And uh, Kendall, will bring you back if you want to do this with us. But I want to compare and contrast Jaws to the first Night Stalker movie because I think they're so similar. So, so, so similar in the, the struggles that Carl has that are similar to Chief Brody. And you talk about the police, you know, procedural and it's it all just sort of goes together. And and I've every single time Jaws has come back on now because of July 4th and Shark Week and everything recently, man, I'm dialed in every time I just I just stand there like a like a zombie and I just keep watching it. 
And, uh, and the, the beautiful thing is my wife doesn't yell at me because she loves it too. <laughs> so I can at least, if you can find that film, yeah. marry it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's see if I can play some of these from Jeff, get this set up here. Hi, Robert, and hi, Dr. Phillips. I'm looking forward to reading your book. You've got a couple of questions, a few questions. Uh, first, you said online that uh, you have a chapter on what the series got wrong and that you're a diehard fan, but you're, you're trying to turn a critical eye towards the movies and series. And I find that statement interesting because sometimes people find it hard to balance fondness and candor. And I was just wondering, how do you push through the fan part of you to reach a place where you can look at a favorite subject? with critical objectivity. Okay. That's his first one. What do you think? That's a, well, that's a great question. And it, it is hard. And I always say to my, my students, my grad students who want to do this kind of work, I said, you know, it's very tempting to want to look at the thing you love the most, but be aware that once you start looking at it, you, you know, you'll start to see uh, past the glow and to start to see the wrinkles. Um, for Kolchak, I think part of it was for me was, and probably for a lot of us, we fell in love with Kolchak when we were pretty young. I, I, I write about this in the book. I was about nine when uh, Kolchak was being re-aired on uh, CBS Late Night, which I think CBS Late Night, that was a miraculous moment. I think for a lot of us, you know, I actually started watching CBS Late Night because they were airing The Avengers which as a nine-year-old, I thought was going to be Marvel's The Avengers. I, did not, I didn't know. I, I started watching saying, why is this British woman in tight leather pants and why do I like that so much? Um, that was, but that CBS Late Night was a bizarre, amazing, like Kolchak was there, the Rockford Files. They drop in cheap beam horror movies. They had The Avengers. They had The New Avengers. Like It was just this weird uh, place. So I fell in love with Kolchak and that time in life when it was so great and innovative I think later coming back as a person who spent a lot of time studying the genre, now you can start to see, and I think it's like we see on a lot of the social media, I'm on uh, some, you know, the Kolchak Facebook groups, as, as I know a lot of your listeners are, and you guys are, um, you know, you people say, wouldn't it have been great if, and that's kind of how I start those questions. And, you know, for me, probably the single biggest limitation for Kolchak was that there really wasn't what we call seriality, which is stories didn't extend, you know, Kolchak never remembers, you know, he just faced Satan. So these witches should not be that big a deal. Right. Or he just faced uh, an alien. So the lizard creature, like, oh, he just faced the uh, reconstituted ape person creature from Antarctica. Like at some point you would think all this knowledge would start to like accumulate, but every time he starts over, none of his colleagues ever remember, like he's always crazy. And it's like, how am I still crazy when you saw like, you know, you saw the vampire, you saw the, uh, the weirdo guy in Seattle. Like how, how can Tony keep saying, I don't believe any of this? Well, because it was so episodic. And I think most of us would agree. The limitation in Kolchak was monsters never came back. The threads were never connected. And then the other part of it, that, that there weren't really any stakes, you know, none of the main cast was ever really endangered. Kolchak was occasionally in danger, but you knew Kolchak wasn't going to die because the episode always started with him saying, here's what happened. So I know logically he's not going to die. And in fairness, all the characters that die in the TV series in particular, who cares? Like we almost never make a, con so there's kind of like never that development of, oh no, if Kolchak doesn't do it, Tony will die. Or there's a threat to Miss Emily. Like it's always very short and episodic, which I think 
as a viewer now, you kind of feel that, especially when you look at it as a whole. And I think that's also, I mean, Darren McGavin was pretty public of saying that was his frustration, was the show just kept re repeating the formula. And there's only, so then you look at, and I know this is a long answer, but mm -hmm. then you look at the shows that came after that I would say learn from that mistake, you know, Twin Peaks, at least the first season, I know Twin Peaks goes in its own special places, uh, but Twin Peaks, you know, builds a coherent season long, who killed Laura Palmer? The X-Files was, was great at balancing, here's an episodic, this is just one monster this episode, but then we're going to reconnect back to this bigger conspiracy, aliens, et cetera, et cetera. Supernatural is probably the series that deserves the most credit. I mean, my God, that, that was like 10 years a massive, enormous, complicated mythology, and then it actually has an ending, which is like most so series like that never actually have a moment where you're like, okay, and we're done, right? So, but all those series, I think, including Buffy, learned from Kolchak. If you're just Monster of the Week, you can't sustain the audience engagement. Yeah, that's cool. I, I never got to get or find the uh, reference of uh, Whedon talking about uh, Kolshak being an influence. So I'm glad that you mentioned that in your book um, that that has happened. And um, yeah, I mean, clearly there's so, so much about that. And, and, and I just, you know, love that the, not the reboot, but let's say the extended X-Files where they bring in the character who plays the, the, the shapeshifter who plays the, uh, the Kolchak character. And uh, is that technically what he was? Skinwalker shapeshifter? What was he Bradley? Yes. Yeah, so yeah. Some, some, something like that. Um, but, but anyway, uh, let's, let's do his other one. And that was a great answer. Je I'm sure Jeff's going to be doing somersaults, uh, hearing you say that. Oh, dry again. Question. A tagline hints that your book discusses how Kolchak, the night stalker, both reflected contemporary horror narratives and changed them. So of all the changes it made, which do you think is the most profound? And if you just want to answer briefly and let the book elaborate on that for us when we read it, that would be fine. So I think there are two, and the one I've already talked about, so I'll just re remind us briefly, is the, the, the biggest is shifting to a narrative around the monster hunter. And that was, again, not entirely unprecedented. There had been a TV show called The Sixth Sense, uh, that had come out just a little before Kolchak uh, that was about a paranormal investigator. But for all kinds of reasons, that never, like I vaguely remember it, but I think most people have no memory of that show whatsoever. Kolchak, because it was a reporter, because it, made, it was more grounded in the real world, not in paranormal investigation, I think that had the bigger impact. But the other thing, especially in terms of TV horror, especially if you look at like, the way TV horror was framed prior to Kolchak, most serial TV horror, so I don't mean the anthology series, but I mean those ongoing shows, were very much domestic-based, right? So Dark Shadows, the, the soap opera, was really built around Collinwood and the family and the household. Same are true of the kind of slightly parody shows, um, The Munsters, Bewitched, The Addams Family. They're all about families, and there may be families be who have magical powers or their families beset by magical things, but they're very much domestic-set dramas. Kolchak took that haunted house domestic threat out into the real world. And as we're talking about, suddenly it's not. I mean, the thing is, we never see Kolchak's house. Like, we never step foot in his house. We see him in hotel rooms. We never set foot in his house. There's never a haunted home. We almost never spend time in anybody's actual home. There's some apartments, 
But even when the series goes to apartments, it's usually just after someone's died and it's a brief investigation. So Kolchak takes what had long been the domestic gothic, the haunted house, the haunted family, the threatened family, and flips that out. So now it's running amok in the streets. And that, I think, is one of the things that other series picked up on whether it was The X-Files or Supernatural or Buffy, it's not about a family domestic drama. It's really a much more wide-ranging narrative. Excellent. Bradley? Yeah. You know, going back to something you said when you answered the first question was that uh, Kolchak, the, the monster of the week, it, it really didn't lead itself to be, I guess, to build suspense and, and build to a story where I think other shows capitalized later. And I think that there's one exception where I feel like, hey, this episode really feels like there's high stakes, and that's the Horror of the Heights episode when you get to Miss Emily. And I also think, wasn't it that episode that brought back the the guy who I think he found a dead body, and then Kolshak even mentions, hey, do I remember you. Uh, I believe that, that might have been that, that episode. Robert, do you remember which episode was it where Kolshak references a guy and t- talks about him He's like, hey, I remember the sort of references the guy who found the body, I think, in a different, was it Spanish North murders? Was it Horror in the Hunts? I do remember that happening at one point. Like, all of a sudden, there was a, a memory. I don't remember it in that one as much as I remember it with the vampire episode. And so, yeah, yeah they, so they, they talk about how the, the vampire that Kolshak kills must be related to Scorzeni. Um, in some way or fashion, from a bite. Well, but they so because ABC didn't own the rights, they couldn't. Right, they couldn't. Yeah. So, Vampire is the closest we have to a through line narrative. Yeah, so I, absolutely right. But for rights reasons, it doesn't get developed. Uh, it's the only episode where Kolchak kind of already has an idea of what to do. Like the minute he gets there, he's yeah. like, "Cross stakes, I'm ready for this." <laughs> um, everything else, and there, you know, again, there are so few recurring characters. Um, other than the the INS folks, there's Gordy the Ghoul, the autopsy guy who I think shows up twice, uh, and there's the police detective Mad Dog who I think is in maybe two episodes as yeah. well. Um, so again, I think that's part of... So I'm not going to say there's never stakes. I agree, the shooting of Emily. Although, I got to say, having watched that episode more than once, and I do... Th- Horror in the Heights is like one of my favorite episodes. I think it's really well done. It's complicated. It's fascinating the way it kind of mixes. Like you immediately think it's about anti-Semitism. It's Jewish. It's the, the swastikas. Then you mix in the Indian stuff. It's this fascinating kind of moment. But even in the end, we've known what the Rakshasa does. Oh, so when yeah. Miss Emily comes walking in, it's not like Jack the Ripper has Miss Emily True. or Tony. <laughs> I always say, I, I tell a story in the book, so, so this is probably don't need to say it here, but for me, the, the interesting moment that really made me think about the stakes is there's a, there's a scene in uh, one of the episodes that's not my favorite, The Youth Killer, uh, yeah. where uh, Tony has got the cursed ring and he's trying to get it off and he's got his Greek cab driver friend trying to help him get the ring off. And in the back office, he hears Tony moaning. And Tony says, Carl, Carl, come, come. I'm, I'm hurt. Carl, come. And I thought at that moment, I thought, oh, my God maybe Carl has the ring or Tony has the ring. Maybe he's cursed. And so Carl goes rushing in and Tony has been taking yoga and has got himself in a Lotus position and can't get up. So it's played for laughs. Like fat guy can't get up out of his Lotus position. Fine. It's a funny bit, but it just, for me, it was the moment I thought, yeah, wait a minute. Updike, Emily, Tony, they're always around. They're always near, but they're never really stakes, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, they're never endangered. Carl's never endangered. And all the other characters, and there's some wonderful, you know, uh, female characters in particular, kind of like almost his love interest or almost his partner. And then they're gone. 
you know, and so that to me, I think that's something other series learned from. Like you have to build a world where we can care beyond just the novelty of saying, what's the monster this week? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rich Haddam uh, had brought up um, in, in similar ways how essentially, you know, the, the Kolshak show wasn't ready for what the Kolshak audience was able to handle. And, you know, that, you know, of course, being this idea of, you know, a, a continuous narrative that, that plays throughout that. And certainly, you know, the, I don't think he needed a sidekick per se, but yeah, one of those people on the street, if he had maybe just three of them, you know, who he'd go to back and forth. Um, I just think that would have been fantastic, but he always needed, you know, someone to help him give this, uh, story to an eyewitness or the expert that he would find. And, um, I loved it. But I think it's also just, you know, it's that, that sort of studio system pretty much where you had all these actors on contract and you had to use them in things and they were all, you know, people who could do character uh, parts and just, you just pop all those people in there and, you know, be done with it. But just, it's, it is interesting to know that um, McGavin was frustrated with it. He wanted something more out of it. He knew that it really needed to go more from that. And uh, it's it's funny that one or two interviews that you can see of him talking about the show. Sorry, I left my mic up way too high there. Um, those one or two interviews where you can see he corrects the pronunciation of Cole Shack to his way of saying it, as opposed to Jeff Rice and other people on the show who wanted to call it Cole Shack. And he, yeah. you know, the he had that that report is like, no, it's Cole Shack. And yeah. uh, he's like, man, that's so McGavin. <laughs> I mean, no, there's no doubt that McGavin was a major. So in, in the early chapter, I write about kind of the creation. I, I talk about Jeff Rice a little bit, really spe- spend time sort of thinking about Matheson and Dan Curtis and their kind of backgrounds. And then Darren McGavin, because I think yeah. you're absolutely right. He, but it's interesting when you look at the television series, it's very clear that ABC didn't quite know what to do because partly they kept moving it around the schedule. And originally they put it later because they wanted to keep it away from kids because they thought it was too violent and there was a little bit of an FCC getting anxious about violence and those kind of pressure to reduce the violence in crime shows. And so ABC kind of puts it later and then they realize that that's not getting the audience and they don't quite, they're not quite making an adult show. So they move it up close to the $6 million man, which was kind of their, their flagship of that night. And so it's, it's funny. It's very clear that ABC didn't quite have a clear sense of where this should fit. Um, but I do think, you know, there, Dan Curtis had a precedent for serial horror. It was just during daytime. It's like, you know, Dark Shadows was a potential land uh, map of the landscape of how could you do extended monstrous gothic stories. But of course, Curtis is kind of out of it after the first two movies. It would have been interesting to see what would have happened if the series had been given to him to develop. And what would Dan Curtis have done in terms of making the series? But again, this is the kind of speculation we have over a couple of beers where we can argue about what could have had, could have, what it should have. It's just not what happened. And, you know, I think Kolshak also suffers a little bit from something that I think nowadays would be corrected is that uh, 
it suffers from that. You know, nowadays you have a writing room of people, you have people curating stories. And especially with a show like Kolchak, you still want a through line or you'd want a through line with a character, but, in, but there's not really as much of a through line as there is a formula. It feels more formulaic than it does. Hey, we, we feel like we know Carl, which we, I mean, we feel like we do, but it's more like, Oh, we know how the, we feel like we know how the show is going to go is more how it plays out. And you get these new riders, you know, like, uh, I think Zemeckis did the, uh, headless motorcycle uh the chopper episode you know and and that gets a lot of flack nowadays or, or whatever uh we're going to cover that with our friend buddy candela one day but, <laughs> but you know i mean even even those you have these different this rotating door of riders whereas even nowadays i think with the twilight zone reboot reboot you still had people curating and sort of like hey let's bring out these stories and let's cherry pick who we bring in whereas at that time it's just like hey anybody can write for Colchak, just give us something and we'll yeah give anybody a try well and the, the series also kind of went through producers and part of that was probably yeah. darren mcgavin who historically did not like anybody who was the executive producer of the show so if there was a showrunner, uh they were constantly under pressure budget pressure mcgavin wasn't happy ratings for the series the ratings were never what they wanted like they were just it wasn't like it started super hot and dropped it started ish and dropped very very quickly to no. I mean, I think it tied in the ratings at the end of that season with the Sonny Bono Hour. This was Sonny and Cher's solo Sonny's yeah. uh, review show. So this was not a pop. I mean, influential, yes. Beloved, yes. Popular, no. Right. And I think you're right. Part of the problem was they couldn't translate the vision of the first two movies into a series. They, and they, they fell into the easy trap of, hey, as long as we can come up with a new monster each week, we can play this over and over and over again. But adult audiences aren't going to watch Scooby Doo like that. I mean, they're not going to—they're not going to be willing to watch Mister Jenkins, the pharmacist in a mask, get unmasked every week. Like at some point, you got to build something more, and that was part of how the series died, and probably that's also part of why it had such a legacy. I think it was probably the—the the fact that the series was short-lived, had so much promise, and failed is part of what made it so influential. Yeah, and and certainly they didn't have the showrunner aspect that we have now but you did have one of the most consistent writers within it being the guy who's written you know possibly the greatest uh, gam- uh gangster series ever david chase and you know and chase talked about how really he loved the aspect of humor being within uh, the storylines and it took him a while i think he said to be able to write for mcgavin uh in doing that they didn't necessarily see eye to eye but eventually they're able to and and uh, that's, I mean, that's just something amazing to me. And I, you know, it took me such a long time after watching the zombie episode to cue in on who was one of the writers of this. And you're like, it's Chase and it's a movie about gangsters. And it's like, wow, um, it's still, that still ranks really high up there for me. And, and I don't, I don't give horror in the Heights as much praise as I probably should. But then again, it is one that I remember, you know, I remember, the, the first episode, The Ripper. Um, I remember the zombie episode. Um, I've always liked Mr. Ring simply because I like the whole Android uh, artificial intelligence thing. And then a couple more down the road. And, and Bradley, I, for some reason, much like uh, the comedian in the latest Twilight Zone, I've begun to like the uh, headless bicycle, bicycle man, uh, motorcycle man, really? much more and more every time I see it. And I even gave it a whole watch through. And I'm like, oh man! Well, it's never been my worst episode. It's never been my worst. And Robin, what is your worst episode? The, the, the last one. Oh, the last one. Yeah, with his with his. Now it's it's absolutely lovely to see the interaction he has with his wife. 
uh, you know, the actress that, that plays the the new police captain. The the rapport with them, it's almost a little like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Like Carl's really into this chick. <laughs> and and so that is delightful. I love seeing that, the rapport. I would love to see that continue, you know, on and on and on for the other stories. That to me is just it's just the it's just, you know, it was just like they were on their last legs, you know, it just couldn't to me be any worse. The scene with him going down <laughs> the big industrial hallway in the golf cart, whatever thing seems like what had to have inspired Michael Myers for, you know, Austin <laughs> powers when he's doing the thing where he can't back up and go forward and back up and go forward in his little, you know, thing that he steals. And I'm like, just, Oh man, this is so bad, but it's, it's still, it's all, you know, th this is the, you know, if I make this one of my children, this is just the child I don't like as much, but they're still my children, <laughs> you know, something like that. And we, we were going to ask you what you felt like were you, if you can name a top um, episode for yourself, wonder what that would be. I, well, Horror in the Heights is up there. The energy eater, oddly enough, oh, I think is, is very, really? as much as it is, Interesting. Yeah, as much as it is, I really like his interaction with the nurse. I like his interaction with the shaman as much as that's kind of red faced, uh, you know, it's a little, uh, it wouldn't fly today. Let's just put it that right, way. Right. But I liked the interaction. I like, and I, that's why I liked the second movie almost more than the first movie. Mm -hmm. I think the first movie is the best. So gotcha. But what I liked about the second movie was his interaction with the female college student. I think it's Louise. Right. And there's like a real, it starts to feel like camaraderie. It starts to feel like, like real energy. And it's like, that doesn't get recreated in a lot of the other it's maybe in the century because again the, the actress is his wife but a lot of them is just clearly people hit their mark and say their lines and you don't feel that spark that you get in some of the mm -hmm. very good bradley what i can't remember have you of what we've seen up to this point do you have a clear favorite um so you know i've actually i think i've technically now seen them all all, all the way through except for the last one i've not seen the last one all the way through so, uh, but my favorite so far, uh, man, I've got them ranked right here. Let me, let me see, because man, you know, the youth killer, it, it wasn't up there, up there, but I didn't hate it. I enjoyed it. Let's see. I've technically got, I, I th I've got horror in the heights and the zombie tied for number um, one. I'd have, yeah. I'd have to rewatch both the, the bus, the whole bus thing with the zombie was a little, <laughs> I mean, every time yeah, you can't like, drop that. I know that's so funny. I, I can't drop it. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> I don't know the pillow with Miss Emily in her shirt too. That got me, but I, I don't know. But I, I like both of those, so I'm gonna keep those tied until I finish the whole thing, and maybe we'll we'll come back around to it. I, I did want to say one more thing about Kolchak, and and this is like a, and I don't want to be like you know, I know there's this whole perception of a gatekeeping, and this is not gatekeeping at all uh, with the series. But it seems like people who come to the series differently have different perspectives on the show. Like, uh, you know, for instance, Rich, Rich Haddam, friend of the show, started with the show. And he watched the Cole Shack, the Night Stalker series. And he loves it. And then he went back and found the movies and fell even more in love with it. Uh, whereas somebody like Rodney Barnes, you know, uh, writer Winning Time, writes Philadelphia and all that stuff like that. He watched the first movie. And I don't think he ever, he came back to the series much, much later Uh and didn't come out to later. And then once you've got the hive that of the movie, you know, the, he he even says in one of our interviews that, you know, I wasn't too much into the, you know, I didn't, I'm not as into the show as I was the movies. And I think people come to it different ways. Uh, how do you think that 
like personally from you, how do you think that changes people's perspective depending on how you came from it? No, absolutely. I mean, certainly the first movie is more frightening. Um, the humor is meaner. I, I write about this little in the book, like the, the Vincenzo Kolshak uh, uh, fights are, are pretty vicious and pretty dark. Like there's a great scene where uh, Tony is wanting uh, the story about the murdered prostitutes to be less gruesome. And uh, Kolchak starts saying, oh, you want us to have them dancing in heaven with uh, roses and rose petals. And, they'll be and it's like really like, ooh, it's like super like kind of creepy, gothic, like unpleasant. And then as the series gets going, I think the first couple episodes are kind of keep that dark like certainly the Ripper episode sort of feels a lot like the two movies, but then you get this very different tone. And so, you know, Kolchak and Vincenzo, they fight, but it's like old married couples. The barbs are like all humorous. It's all with tongue in cheek. It gets, so I think if you came in late and you had that Kolchak, which was, let's say, 70% humor, 30% horror, then that is your comfort zone. And when you get to the Night Stalker, which is like 80% horror, 20% humor, that doesn't feel right. And the same is true if you started with the Night Stalker, the original movie, and you're expecting this to be mainly about horror and investigation and death and gruesomeness, and you get to an episode like, you know, The Century or The Youth Killer, where it's like, this is kind of just making fun of dating. Like, this could be a love boat episode if it weren't for people dying. Like, it's, it's actually not that far off, right? Um, so absolutely. And I, and I think that's the great thing about Coltec is there are lots of things for people to love. And I that's also part of how it became so influential is it sort of said to future TV makers, if you can get horror and humor and interesting kind of sets and places and plot devices together and you balance that right, you will get your audience. And certainly that's what Chris Carter did and Eric Kripke and Joss Whedon and all those other great creators, all of whom kind of explicitly say Kolchak is where they got their inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Robert, where'd you want to go from here? Is there anything we're, else? Well, to... we're, we're, rowing, we're just a hair over an hour. And uh, I had told uh, Kendall that we'll, I'm not at my office, so I don't have uh, as much um, uh, time restrictions, but we, you know, so we can keep on going. We certainly have been able to do that. Um, I would say let's, let's just mention some things more, some details about your book. And when that's coming out for people, um, if you want to give any plugs for help, people that helped you with it and those types of things, uh, what can you say about that, Kendall? Well, first and foremost is, is Mark Dwidziak. And so Mark is, you know, this was my Bible. If you could see if you had the video, like this yeah. is, you can see, like I got it marked up to pieces. Uh, uh, Mark is amazing. I believe I've heard that there's going to be maybe a second edition to this coming out oh, there is. that may be happening. So uh, I would say everybody get this. If you have a few extra pennies, you can buy my book. But Mark is, is without a doubt, <laughs> the most knowledgeable cold check. I think probably the most knowledgeable 1970s TV person, period, bar none. So I am the biggest fan of his. Um, but I'm also, you know, I was just very grateful to the amazing folks at Wayne State University Press. Um, I'll say a word about this. So part of the inspiration for writing this was I'd love the show as, as, a young, as a young person. But part of it was, you know, seeing this Wayne State TV milestone series. And I have a friend here at Syracuse who wrote a book about Twin Peaks. And so I started looking at this series and I think it's very nice to have these sort of relatively short, you know, tight, concise books. They're kind of set, mainly all saying, here's why this show deserves to be recognized. And I started looking and seeing Twin Peaks and I saw X-Files as a Twilight Zone. I started thinking, hey, wait a minute, the show that was so influential on so much of television 
is missing. And I, and I kind of thought to myself, I don't know that anybody else is going to stand up and say, I want to make the case for Kolchak being a TV milestone, a really important moment in TV history. And so I'm very thankful to the great folks at Wayne State University Press who, who were open to me saying, hey, even though this TV series only lasted 20 episodes and never had good ratings, I, let me try to make the case to say this is actually an important moment in TV history. Uh, and they've been incredibly supportive ever since. So I'm, I'm very fortunate and I'm glad. Again, I'd say to all the fans out there, Mark's book is your definitive history. But if you want the book to help answer the question when people say, well, why do you like that series? I think that's what this book does. This book at least tells people, even if you don't like Kolchak, it's important. And it changed the way you watch television. And so that, I think, that's really what this book is all about. Yeah, and I can tell you just from reading, and I haven't finished it or probably read as much as Robert has, but I can tell you just from reading through it, I, I, would, I would call this a companion to the companion that Mark wrote because this is like a, it's a whole different take on Kolchak and why it's important. And it's, and whereas Mark's is the Bible of Kolchak, this is uh, maybe the uh, Gnostic Gospels. I, I, I don't know. That's probably a, that's probably a bad I, one, too. I would call it the hymnal. The hymnal. The, there you, you go. You, you, you study this, but this but you, you can sing along to. Yeah, that's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah, uh, because just reading through it it, it, it there's a lot of great information in there, a lot of great questions posed. And, I mean, you're coming at it from a perspective of, in the decade since, let's let's take a look at it. Let's dive into Kolchak. In the decade since, why is this important? Even, man, God, going on close to what is it? Fifty years later, seventy. Yeah, this is the fiftieth anniversary yeah, of so the uh, original of the original movie. film, and then yeah, yeah so uh, man, just just it's something that can definitely have a spot on your shelf beside the original novels and the Kolchak Companion, and from uh, some of those great Moonstone books and comics that you got, that you got up there too. Another great Kolchak book to add up there. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's uh, it's coming out in August. It'll be out in mid-August. Uh, there's some copies already out there, but uh, it'll be available in mid-August. Uh, it's relatively short and relatively cheap. So you can pay a couple of pennies and have this slipped in next. And, it, and it's very small, so it doesn't take up much space. So you can put it right oh, next yeah. to the comic books and it's perfect place. Yeah, that's great. And uh, hey, maybe we can we can buy a copy and we can give it out on the show or something for uh, for a live stream or something. That'd be pretty cool. Because I'd love Kendall, I'd love to have you back, man, and get you and Mark in the same room just to just chopping it up. Because I feel like we put Mark in so many shows. Like we're like, hey, Mark, we, we're gonna have you like we're setting him up like a like a speed dating or something. I don't know. It's I'm in love with him, so that's fine. I'm absolutely <laughs> no, he's 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 amazing. Hey, we, and he we are very too, helpful. We are I too. will say. He, not only the book, but he was very – I was able to send him a couple of questions and things, and he is – you know, often when people are kind of the definitive source on something, when other people come and say, hey, I'm going to write about this, they can be very territorial, very defensive. Mark is the opposite, the most gracious, supportive. He was always saying good luck with the book, and the couple of questions I was able to ask him, he would answer quickly and say, you know, let me know. So just the most gracious human being. So if I had any chance to spend time with Mark – I, I will be a happy camper. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I can remember exactly the time that Mark and I were having a long conversation about my other pursuits that I want to do with the podcast and recognizing Jeff Rice. And he mentioned that he'd spoken to you and, uh, you know, just went on and on and on about it. So it was, you know, just great to hear that the, you know, what I like to think of as the Coal Shack legacy just continues. And, uh, and it really, you know, 
I had no idea that, you know, James Aquilon was going to come along and offer this contest and put together this, you know, incredible graphic novel and short stories compilation uh, with the things that he does. And, and that's making Kolshak live on. So I, I think that's just fantastic that that's, that's doing a that. I'm supporter of that. I'm waiting to get my copy. I'm all of, all of us are. And in early, so yeah. Bradley may be the only one on the screen who is a contestant in that. I, I, got, I got too frustrated with changing my, my story around too often, so I never submitted. And Bradley, I don't know if you're going to break any news yet, if you've been selected or, oh, I, or not. I haven't been. Uh, he's still waiting to contact people. So <laughs> yeah. uh, pro- I probably haven't, but it was definitely a fun experience either way. And uh, I sent it to Mark, and he – he he gave me the old Mark seal approval, and that's all, that's the only seal approval on that's there. Really, good. Is Mark Woodjack says it's good. It's good, but yeah, I you know thank you so much for your time. I don't know if there's anything else we need to talk about, but is there anywhere we can find you? Work? I know you mentioned your Twitter earlier. Is there any way people can get in contact with you if they just want to uh, learn more about the book or learn learn more about you? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm on Twitter at Dark Projections which is the combination of two of my earlier book titles. I don't know why I chose that, but I did. Uh, I'm also, uh, you can find me on Facebook on the Colchak group, so you can certainly reach out to me on that. Uh, I'm a professor at Syracuse University, so you can find me there. I should also say I am also a podcaster. Uh, Heaven help us. Uh, I have a podcast called Pop Life uh, that's produced uh, here at WAER and goes out through National Public Radio. So if people are looking for general pop culture conversation where I talk less and ask questions more, come check us out at Pop Life W-A-E-R. Well, well, that's fantastic. Well, guys, if you've seen me pop in and out frequently, it has been checking on, I told Kendall, my, my hellhounds uh, that are here with me today. And right now I've got one outside the door just panting, uh, looking at me like, let me in. Well, too, too bad. I've gotten up too many times for him. He's just going to have to stay out there a little bit longer. He's got fresh water. We'll, we'll let him just keep doing that. And as far as I can tell, yeah, the gate's still closed, so we're good. Um, but, yeah, Kendall, thank you so much for being so quick to respond to my request to have you come on and talk to us. And and then for us to be able to set all this up, this worked out perfectly for me. Uh, for, again, for the stuff that I had going on, I thought I was going to do it at work, but was able to be, take advantage of being here at home and doing it. And, uh, yeah, we'd, we'd love to have you back, um, and we can talk about any number of topics. I think we already covered any number of topics. Bradley, I joked with him at the beginning because I told him how many of his other things I've read already that uh, I've gotten summaries about, like, man, I could talk about those all day. And he said, well, we could do that as well. Just be a regular Bradley podcast because we won't stay on topic. (laughs) (laughs) Three under the bus on that one. But you know, you're, you were there for a little bit of Colshack. So that's good. We we still did it. Um, And thank you to uh, Jeff Colburn for uh, calling in some uh, questions for us and uh, being able to play those and get those wonderful responses from Kendall and uh, Kendall. I want to, end with a little bit of a guess on what your uh, middle name is and uh <laughs> I, I i i mine mine's mine's an s and no one ever gets my middle name because it's almost impossible to get but um bradley uh, put you on the spot what do we think with a name like kendall and r and phillips where do you want to go with the r he's from texas Random. Randolph, Randolph. Hmm, that, that's pretty good. Now, if he's Texas, it could be a Southern tradition. It could be somebody's last name. So I'm going to throw out that it's Kendall Reynolds Phillips. Have no idea. That's what I'm going to go with. Kendall, what do you want to divulge? What your middle name is? It's Robert. I we, no, I, I wish you were more. I wish you were more interested. Ray. So it's uh, Kendall Ray. Of, that's very Southern. Kendall Ray. My father's name was Cecil Ray. Nice. Uh, 
so the the Ray middle name has kind of traveled through a couple of generations. Um, yes, I'm fortunate that my father's name was Cecil. My brothers were Donald and Ronald, and when I came along, they had run out of names. So my my first name was picked out of a baby book, randomly picked out of a baby book. But I got the Ray uh, middle name. So, but, hey. but but yes, I I may I may switch it to Randolph just for fun. Yeah, you know, it could be you could have like your same first name be like one letter off from your last name so at least it's not like that i guess yeah exactly oh, he's we, you know he never listens to us so it doesn't yeah. matter this we we have a mutual friend that we podcast with daryl darnell whose name is very similar and he has an entering the fifth dimension and a very successful stranger things podcast right now with his daughter um talk to him about that he's got somewhere around eighteen thousand. Uh, listeners, Bradley, I don't know if you've ever checked in with him on that or not, but that's a that's a pretty hefty number. But uh, anyway, I digress. So um, once again, Kendall, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, we love to talk about this idea about how in Kolshak's loop, we sort of start in the middle with Kolshak, and then we go outside of that to make a loop around it all. So next time you'll find us, folks, you can get us here inside the loop. Okay, there's the official ending, Kendall. Fantastic, man. Thank you so much. That was great. I listened to so many of your episodes. It was fun to actually be talking to you. Sometimes I had to remind myself I have to respond because I was, I was waiting. I wonder what he's going to say. So it's, uh, it's great. <laughs> That's hilarious because I almost did a somersault when you said I'm a fan. I was like, what? He's a fan? I can't be. <laughs> the Kolchak fan community is so great. And I, I have to confess, I didn't really find it until I started working on the book. I'd always been a Kolchak fan. I just never really thought to go look on Facebook or things. I just, you know, it just hadn't occurred to me to do that. I started the recording the book, has stopped. And I started finding all these great groups and podcasts and great folks doing you know, the Moonstone stuff. And it's just like so much energy and love. 